Hi, and welcome to another episode of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. There's quite a difference between a trial lawyer and an appellate lawyer. A trial lawyer talks to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. And an appellate lawyer argues his or her case to Supreme Court justices during a process called oral argument. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. It's the difference between connecting with the average citizen and keeping up with rapid fire questions asked by justices. The topic of this episode is oral arguments. A lawyer who orally argues a case face-to-face in front of justices has already submitted a comprehensive written brief. Most cases are not orally argued. The lady justices answer questions about oral argument during a panel discussion. What are they looking for from attorneys? What happens if a lawyer has a brain freeze? And perhaps more importantly, Can oral argument be so effective it actually changes the mind of a justice and the outcome of a case? Can the spoken word hold more power than the written word? I'm Rhonda Wood of the Arkansas Supreme Court. I'm joined again by my colleagues and dear friends, Chief Justice Bridget McCormick of the Michigan Supreme Court, Justice Beth Walker of the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals, and Justice Eva Guzman of the Texas Supreme Court. We are live tonight from Houston, Texas, and we are visiting with the Texas Association of Civil Trial and Appellate Specialists. We are going to let their president, Kent Rudder, moderate and ask us questions. And so we're looking forward to hearing what their questions are. So for now, I'm going to turn it over to Kent. Welcome, everyone. My name is Kent Rudder. I'm currently serving as president of TACTUS this year. We are recording this tonight for use on a future episode of the podcast. Um, And we wanted to focus a little tonight on oral advocacy. So let me start by just asking, um, first of all, is oral argument useful to you as a judge? And um, how do you view your role during oral argument? Oral argument on the Michigan Supreme Court is very, very important. Um, it's, It's both important for digging deep on the hard questions in the case. Usually by the time I show up at argument, I, I, I know what I think about sort of the um, easier questions, but um, the, the, I'm, I know I'm gonna focus on those harder questions that I myself am a little bit stuck on. And it's always helpful also to hear some of my colleagues' questions um, and some of the um, answers to those questions. So it's, it, it is uh, a really important um, piece of the puzzle in, in the court I sit on. And I'll just add, we have had the case assigned to one of the justices when it is argued. And in our, in our particular court, we do them in two tracks. One track goes, uh, is decided on the briefs and the others, uh, are heard in oral argument. And so, um, we have looked at the case. We have uh, usually some very specific questions, um, lots of times about little things that, you know, maybe bother one of us or one of our one of the lawyers working with us, um, something that's missing from the records, something that really is, you know, wa- wondering what's going on. And so we're ready. I mean, we're and we're excited and it does make a difference to me. I have changed my mind more than one time um, in four years going into a case thinking, ah, oh, I've, I've got this case figured out. And an effective advocate will always um, make you pause if you if you weren't, you know, sort of thinking along the lines of that side of the case. Um, so it's, it's really important. 
it can change the outcome of a case, at least in our court. I always um, describe it as I wish it was called like oral conversation instead of argument. Um, and that's how I sort of see it as sort of a conversation between the court and the attorneys. Um, you know, of sort of moving in the direction of, okay, we've read your argument in your briefs. We've read that. Now, here's the conversation we need to have to sort of pinpoint. Here's the areas of our concern. Um, and let's have a conversation about, you know, the issues that are sort of critical to the court getting to that final step of reaching the decision. Um, you know, I'm not as one of the hotter members of the, the court, but it's because, you know, I'm coming in and I feel like it's not a waste of time and it's like, okay, here's where I'm at and here's what I need to know to kind of make that final decision and um, absolutely have um, walked out of there saying, okay, well, that just turned me all the way around, you know, and oftentimes it's very um, important of, okay, this is what you're saying about the issue, but what's the right sort of remedy um, we have a lot of issues with, well, is it a remand or is it, a, you know, even if you win as an appellant, what's the right sort of, you know, when we fine tune it, is it, you know, do we dismiss, do we remand, do we do, the, you know, what exactly is the relief um, precisely? Um, or, and so anyway, I, I just think it's really helpful for that reason as well. On the Texas Supreme Court, um, the cases are very close, and that's why it's so important. I have seen um, around the table after conference, uh, you know, opinions, um, judges will say, well, argument, I was the other way, but argument uh, persuaded me. And so it it is important, and um, I think you fill in the gaps. Uh, what is my role? It depends. Um, you know, there are times when I'm very um, an active questioner on a case, and it may seem that that I'm leaning one way or another, but actually, sometimes I just want to give a lawyer an opportunity to make the very best case that they can because I have a feeling that, you know, they're going to lose. And sometimes I, I, I want to highlight areas where I think it's important for my colleagues to, um, you know, this, this is me assessing it. It's not them telling me this. It's just I think it may be important for them to hear a little bit more about a particular issue. And sometimes I don't ask a lot of questions because there's nine of us and there are other justices doing a terrific job of um, engaging the attorneys on the important issues and on the nuances. So it depends. I, I think each argument is different, but they're super important. Um, and the primary reason is because they're so close, I think, most of the time, not always, but most of the time. So focusing on the positive side first, when an oral argument goes especially well and you find it especially helpful, um, why is that? What is the hallmark of a really effective oral argument? It's probably hard to it's probably hard to um, summarize because I think there are lots of different effective arguments. But I I guess I want to echo something um, Rhonda said. You know, the the advocate who shows up prepared to um, just engage us in conversation in a non-defensive way, you know, the, an advocate who can concede points that that can be conceded, you know, you don't have to win every single point to to um, to win to win your case um, and sort of engages the, the hard questions like a thought partner 
Those are the advocates who I think are most successful. You know, just almost the the ones who 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 you can tell they're having fun. They, they that that this is you know they're it's like they're at play. You know that they they are uh, really eager and excited about the hard questions and even the questions they hadn't thought of. That they you know you can see like a twinkle in their eye. Um, those advocates usually I think give a great argument. And I'll just add to that. Um, it's a lot of fun to have someone who is focusing on being an appellate attorney as opposed to a trial attorney. And you all know that those are two very different skills. Um, but we still have a lot of folks who come before us who are trying to, you know, play to the jury, play to all that. So a really, you know, a really effective advocate in our court is someone who does everything that, you know, Bridget has described and that we've talked about. Um, but is also focusing their message, their points to us. I mean, they're they're focused. They don't feel the need to cover every single point in their brief. I appreciate it when someone really focuses in on their very best stuff in the limited amount of time you know they have in our court. Which um, for our we have two kinds of cases: ones that with unique issues, which are 20 minute arguments, others not unique issues, which are 10 minute arguments. So that's a really compressed period of time to um, to make your points. And I can appreciate very much when someone is focused. So what I thought I'd do is throw out um, a few uh, nightmare scenarios from the advocates perspective and uh, ask each of you to just say very briefly what you'd uh, recommend in that circumstance. First scenario is the lawyer just does not know the answer to the question, or maybe just has a brain freeze, draws a blank. Chief Justice McCormick, what do you recommend? Uh, I recommend owning it, saying, uh, I'm sorry, it's a great question. I don't, I don't think I know the answer off the top of my head. So, you know, and then if the lawyer is um, capable of um, thinking out loud, I, I wouldn't mind that one bit, you know, but I would start with, uh, that's an excellent question that I did not come prepared to answer. Um, here's how I think I would think about it. Um, these are the, these are the considerations that I think are relevant and thinking out loud. Um, here's where I would land, but, you know, leaving room for I'm doing this on the fly. So, you know, if I have an opportunity to sit down and I get to come back for a battle and I think of something better, I will be back to tell you what's better. But I think being honest about um, not having a perfect answer is is just fine. It's credibility building. I agree. Um, I think that all of us as justices, we know we're not perfect. Um, and so we don't expect perfection. So I think you're honest and you build a credibility and in our court um if it's something as far as you know a specific about a statute or what case or whatever um it's acceptable to say if the court you know would like me to supplement with that information um, i'm happy to do so and then the court could decide whether to do that um but absolutely i agree um, be candid nobody expects perfection all right scenario number two the lawyer receives a question that begins with the dreaded words. So, counsel, do you concede? And then it goes on from there. Chief Justice McCormick. I think I, I always think you should be really thoughtful in advance of what concessions you can make and make them again, build credibility by um, arguing the points that you really have a good argument about and not the ones you don't. 
Um, so I, I, I obviously, if they're asking you to, if if a justice is asking you to concede that you lose, probably you don't want to do that, right? Or you wouldn't have shown up. So, um, but if it's a concession that doesn't make a difference to um, your getting to where you need to get to, and you think it should be conceded, concede it. I agree. Um, and I've had the, you know, a justice on our court um, really pressure someone to concede their case away. And I've had an attorney say, you know, I recognize um, that my professional duty is to my client and I'm here to argue their case, you know, and, and very professionally say that. And, you know, I think you can't concede your case away um, and you have to, you know, if you have to remind that you have that professional duty, but um, you also can't be the attorney that refuses to concede, you know, the sky's blue. So um, there's a line to draw. And I would say, uh, don't concede if you don't know the, the consequences of, of that concession. But many years ago, a justice kept trying to get a lawyer to concede and I kept coming back. Now you actually mean this, don't you? Because I had probably prepared for his case better than the lawyer had. And so he finally didn't concede. It would have you know, been just very detrimental to his position. So my advice is don't concede if you don't know what, the, what consequences will flow from, from that concession. How do y'all feel about the phrase with all due respect? Some lawyers use that a lot. <laughs> when, when I hear with all due respect directed to the court, it sounds condescending from the advocate. And, um, you know, we see that occasionally from folks who come in from out of state and think that they've, you know, shown up in West Virginia and they're way smarter than we are. Um, and it, it just doesn't play very well. So I would vote no. Can I add that? I don't know if Bridget and Beth, we've talked about um, what bless her heart means uh, in the South. <laughs> <laughs> but when people say bless her heart, they don't mean bless her heart. Um, and so I think that's what that whole, with all due respect, um, is like bless her heart um, in the South. Yeah, I think um, it's hard to disagree with judges, particularly when they're on the bench in the position of power. So some people actually say it and don't mean it in a condescending way. But I think by now, most of us understand it in a different way. So I would probably stay away from it um, if you can. But I, I think I understand the urge. I mean, people, you want to, you, you don't want to have to agree if you think a judge might be missing something important. And we do miss things, you know, we're humans. So maybe, but I, I guess I, it does, there's something about that phrase that's a little bit grating. Um, so I think you could do it lots of other ways. You could say, um, well, that, that's not my under, I, I think I slightly disagree with that, Your Honor, or just respectfully. I think I have a different take on what the um, rule is from that case. I think there's a way to signal that you're trying to disagree respectfully without using that particular phrase, which does feel, um, I guess I have to agree with my friends. It feels a little grating for some reason. Not sure why, maybe it's overused or it's, it's bless her hearty. Thank you for those answers. Um, I'll ask you this, Justice Wood. Um, Ever wake up in the middle of the night thinking about an oral argument or even an opinion that you've issued and think of something 
that you wish you'd handled differently or maybe articulated in a, in a different way? I do that all the time. Um, so, um, I will say the one of the a bad thing is when you pull up and you research cases and you find one of your opinions and you find a typo in it, like nothing is, I mean, that's just a horrible feel, you know, feeling. Luckily, you know, knock on wood, that's a very, very rare thing, but you just cringe. Um, but yeah, oral argument, um, you know, sometimes I'll regret something that I asked and did it, you know, inartfully. Um one example, I remember that um, there was a case involving, you know, something like, you know, $5 million or something. And, you know, I think out of my head and um, and I remember thinking in the case and it was about a percentage. And I thought I just said it out loud as a question, you know, well, what if you deducted this and then you deducted this and then you redid the percentages and then this, then would it still be over the limit? And the attorney just looked at me. And I realized that I just asked him to do some complex, you know, math at the podium. And, um, you know, he luckily was smooth enough that I think he, he said, you know, Your Honor, I'm sorry, I don't have a calculator up here. And you know, I'm happy to, you know, do that and come back at, during my rebuttal with the, the figure. Um, but I regretted that. Um, there's several times like that that I just thought, I can't believe I... You know, but it was what I was thinking. It was a serious question and a concern. But um, there's sometimes where I probably I felt like I've maybe been a little too hard on my questioning, um, and I regret it. Um, and if I see the attorney, I apologize. After the case was over, I'll run into him and, at an event and say, you know, if that came off as being a little too harsh, I just was really concerned about the case and really trying to get to the issue. And usually they tell me they weren't, but that's what they're going to tell me, probably. Um, but yeah, I think that. You know, we're just like you guys that re rerun through an argument. Um, when you get home as a advocate, we you know run through the argument. You know, when we get home, um, and think through it, and wish we could have asked you know one more question. The the things that wake me up in the middle of the night are not so much a particular oral argument or a particular opinion. Although I've had those nightmare. The worst is when we file and ours ours get posted online at three o'clock on the day that they come down. Um, and you get that call from the lawyer who has spotted a typo that you you know that your 17 layers of checks did not catch. Um, but but aside from that, I, what what keeps me up at night is just the process of you know deciding these important cases. You know you're affecting people's lives. Um, you know whether someone's going to spend the rest of their life in prison or not. Whether you know, people are, are the, the damages issues that come up before us. And, you know, when I know what the law is and when I know how the case should be decided based on the law, but my heart is for whatever reason, personal preference, sympathy, you know, policy thoughts, when my heart is another way and I have to rectify those things. So that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. And sometimes I think it's probably you, this doesn't sound like it to you all, but it's easier to be an advocate because you already know what your position is, but we have to try to chart the right course um, in cases that are close and difficult and affect people's lives. And I, I think for me, um, you know, it's this idea of judges are human too. And these cases do weigh on us and especially cases um, that involve issues that affect a lot of people in their daily lives, th those really weigh heavily on me. And um, 
you know, there are a lot of issues, policy issues that are just left to other branches of government and not to us. I wish judges could talk about particular cases. There are some that I wish I did differently in hindsight and retrospect. Uh, but you make the best decision that you can at the time based on the information that you have and the research that you've done. And I mean, we have some of the best um, lawyers working with us. We have access to um, some of the best briefing. You're at the Supreme Court. So um, we're all human and, and we need to keep that in mind, I think. I wake up a lot in the middle of the night when I sometimes my brain figures something out that was it was having a hard time figuring out uh, during the daytime hours or nighttime hours, you know, so they would be preparing the case for oral argument, for example, and I'll wake up in the middle of the night and go, wait a minute, do justiciability doctrines apply to the APA? You know, and like I'll have like big ideas in the middle of the night, which is really dangerous because then I want to go figure it out. Um, and that happens to me. We wrap up this episode with a discussion about the position in state and federal government responsible for arguing in front of the Supreme Court, the Solicitor General. When you see the names of Supreme Court cases, and they say versus state or versus the United States, these are the lawyers arguing on behalf of the state or federal government. Here's Justice Rhonda Wood. If you remember when we began this podcast, one purpose was to discuss and shed light on the similarities and differences of the federal and state government, specifically regards to the judiciary. Well, we cannot have oral argument without an advocate or an attorney. In the federal system, the president appoints the attorney general, who is the head of the Department of Justice. The solicitor general is an executive branch officer and the attorney who reports to the attorney general I'm curious how the role of attorney general may be different in our various states and whether we each have a solicitor general. So Bridget, how is your attorney general selected in Michigan and do you have a solicitor general? Um, yeah, Michigan has a solicitor general, but first let me back up and talk about how the AG is selected. In Michigan, the attorney general um, runs for statewide office. They are nominated uh, by the political parties and run on the statewide ballot for four-year terms. They run the same time our governor and secretary of state run, um, and there is a limit of two terms. And then the attorney general appoints the solicitor general in Michigan. That, that position was created in 1939 in Michigan, and it's modeled after the um, United States solicitor general position and has a, has a similar docket. And and throughout history, there have been a, a number of attorney, att excuse me, solicitor generals who have served um, attorney generals from both parties. As recently as um, around the turn of the last century, one solicitor general served attorney generals who had been um, nominated by Democrats and Republicans. That, that seems to be less true in the last 20 years. Um, and that's probably for a different podcast. Um, I will say one more thing, which is in Michigan right now, um, we have the very first um, woman serving as solicitor general in our state and the very first Arab American serving as attorney general in the country. So yay, Michigan. Eva, how is the attorney general selected in Texas? And how about the solicitor general? Thanks, Bridget. Well, like Michigan, Texas elects its attorney general uh, for a four-year term, although that wasn't always the case in 1836 when Texas was a republic, the attorney general was appointed by the uh, governor. In 1850, we amended our constitution and have elected 
the attorney general to a four-year term ever since. We've not had a female serve in that capacity. Unlike Michigan, our um, Office of Solicitor General is a relatively new office. It was created uh, by then Attorney General, now Senator John Cornyn in 1999. Our first Solicitor General was the late Greg Coleman. We've not had a female serve full-time in that capacity, but we did have um, an interim female Solicitor General and that's Julie Parsley, um, who, who served in that capacity for a short period of time and just did a wonderful job. Well, in West Virginia, our Attorney General is and has been uh, selected for some time in a partisan election, not unlike the other states. Um, it is a four-year term. There are not term limits in West Virginia, so actually, our Attorney General Patrick Morrissey uh, was just elected and will begin his third term. But in 2013, he created the Solicitor General position for the first time. And that person was Albert Lynn, who is probably known to the appellate Twitter community. The thing that is, I guess, notable about Solicitor General uh, is that, you know, that that lawyer is in charge of some other lawyers in the appellate division of the attorney general's office. And they represent the state, not just in big cases, it might make the newspaper, but they are in charge of any time the state comes before us. So whether it's a worker's comp issue, whether it's something as simple as a driver's license being revoked, which believe it or not, we hear those cases, um, that someone who is either the solicitor general who is currently Lindsay C, she's, uh, we have a female solicitor general, which is very exciting now, um, that state agency is represented by the Solicitor General or someone they supervise. So in Arkansas, um, we do have our first female Attorney General and um, Attorney Generals are elected for four-year terms on a partisan basis. Um, they, like Michigan, are limited to two terms. Um, so she is term limited out at the end of her term this year um, in 2021. Um, we, it's interesting that Bridget said that their Solicitor General Office has been around for so long because we're sort of like West Virginia. Ours was created in 2015. Um, Lee Radowski was our first Solicitor General and he's now a, um, on the federal bench. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, we've had lots of times where, where there's been an Attorney General of one party and the Governor of another party. And so sometimes the, you know, interests um, are not always aligned, but the Solicitor General, of course, argues in our court, the state Supreme Court, and also then the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of the state of Arkansas. Um, interestingly enough, I guess we're all of us are elected, but when I was doing some research, I discovered that in Tennessee, the Tennessee Supreme Court elects the Attorney General. And so I don't know how that works. <laughs> or that I would want to do that as a Supreme Court Justice, but um, it may be worth um, looking into um, if we, at a next conference, we run into the, one of the Tennessee Supreme Court Justices to find out more about that. Thank you again for joining Lady Justice, Women of the Court. We encourage you to let us know if you have um, any comments or feedback or topics that you want to have us cover. You can reach us at ladyjusticepod.com. You can follow us at Twitter at ladyjusticepodc. 
Um, all of us individually are on Twitter and you can find us and follow us there and send us um, any notes about the podcast as well. If you're interested in finding more about Tactus, you can learn about their organization at www.tactus.org. And we want to thank them for inviting us and letting us participate with their group and assisting with our podcast recording. Opinions expressed on this program are ours alone and not necessarily those of our respective courts. As always, thank you for your interest in state Supreme Courts and in the judiciary. Until next time.